It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Let me bring your own head, beat it up, and I've seen that no sheets. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, the fire, the southern gangs, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, you were sure you down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a moment of morality in a mendacious world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And you are? I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostest, also known as Nurse Amy. We are the queen and the codger, the beauty and the beast, the geezer and the goddess. And we are here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Yes. Friends and neighbors, (laughs) have you been injured in an accident? With a cacophonous cockatoo, well, our attorney says don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour show Remember, <laughs> are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent <laughs> medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. Where am I? Yes. <laughs> no contract or provi- provider or patient relationship exists. Or as implied between the hosts and listeners, Dr. Bones and Nursing, we strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when modern medical care is just not an option, will you know what to do or will you be a looky-loo? Looky-loo. Come on, prove to the world that you got more sense than a satchel of sassafras (laughs) by learning what to do for injuries and illness in times of trouble. And while you're at it, get some supplies and a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated but never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues you'll face in any disaster and designed by yours truly, an honest-to-gosh medical doctor, and hers truly, an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff, or just ask anyone who's ever bought one. And you'll agree that our kits are the ones you should have in your medical storage. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us, so don't wait, Nate. Reach out to the geezer and the goddess. It is so easy, and here's a lovely Nurse Amy to tell you how. Well, you can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. 
Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Like and follow our Facebook page, Doom and Bloom. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy. Well, that's uh, more stuff than you can shake a stick at in terms of mm-hmm. knowledge and information. Well, and it keeps us busy. Education and entertainment. It keeps us off the street. Edutainment. Right? Yeah, it keeps us <laughs> off the street. Absolutely. Keeps me rocking in my rocking chair and drooling on my shoes. <laughs> Less yeah. drooling, please. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about electromagnetic pulses. This is an issue that is considered sort of out there in terms of possibilities, but maybe not so much Mm -hmm. given the latest headlines with regards to North Korea and other folks like that. You know, we live in the shadow of the sun, which gives us, well, shadows, but also bathes us in huge amounts of electromagnetic radiation. But luckily for us, the Earth has a magnetic field that serves as a shield against cosmic rays. And thanks to it, the human race survives solar storms and other cosmic phenomena. Uh, the last major EMP event from natural causes, as a matter of fact, that was significant enough to cause major disruption was in 1859. That was known as the Carrington event, named after an amateur astronomer that fi- first figured out what was going on. In that event, a solar storm caused widespread damage to telegraph lines, which is about all the technology they really had back then, and caused the northern lights to be seen as far south as Jamaica, no less. Now, the sun is a natural source of electromagnetic radiation, but there are unnatural sources as well. The proliferation of nuclear weapons has given us the potential for ending society, not just from nuclear blasts, but also from the electromagnetic pulse that a nuclear bomb gives off when it's detonated. So a nuclear electromagnetic pulse, sometimes called an NEMP, that's Can a burst of radiation. A, a NEMP. Our NEMP, that might be easier. Yes, a NEMP is a burst of radiation created by the detonation of a nuclear weapon that's high in the atmosphere. The higher up it is, the more severe the effects. And the resulting flood of electromagnetic energy can produce surges that instantaneously damage unprotected electrical grids and certain electronics, and sometimes permanently. Right, making it unfixable. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've talked about EMPs ourselves, I'm not sure if we've ever done a show on it, but these are long-term events. We can't just fix these things so instantly because it would be widespread. Everybody's going to want their computer fixed. Everyone's going to want their community electrical grids to be fixed, and they just don't have the manpower and the parts to get to all of this. The effects of an electromagnetic pulse, especially a nuclear one, we don't have a lot of experience with it, but I'll tell you this much, that in 1962, the United States tested a 1.4 megaton thermonuclear bomb 240 miles over the South Pacific. Operation was called Starfish Prime. When they exploded this bomb in the atmosphere, it unexpectedly affected street and traffic lights a thousand miles away in Hawaii. And eventually it led to the 1963 ban on detonations in the atmosphere. Now, the military has since taken measures to harden its strategic defense systems against NEMPs or NEMPs. We don't know exactly what they've done. I guess that's classified. But I can tell you this much, that very little has been accomplished to protect civilian infrastructure. And that's in a nation increasingly dependent upon electronics. The consequences of a true successful nuclear electromagnetic pulse attack, 
Well, they probably would be, as Amy says, pretty devastating. It would probably knock millions of people off the grid in an instant, and that would cause widespread chaos. Even though a detonation 200 to 300 miles up in space, that does not kill people from the blast. You can imagine the challenges related to keeping society stable and certainly keeping people healthy in the aftermath of some grid-ending event. Once upon a time, this kind of event, a nuclear EMP, was considered to be a very low likelihood of occurrence, but recent advances in all this weapons technology, it's beginning to make even skeptics realize that NEMPs may soon be a possibility. So the sad thing is that we just don't really have a clear picture of the effects of a nuclear EMP, especially if it hit any heavily populated areas. Now, some people do believe that an unprotected electrical grid struck by an EMP could take years to restore in the worst-case scenarios, and at the very least, even if it's some kind of limited event, could cause widespread civil unrest. Not a surprise, because it doesn't take much to cause civil unrest these days, so it appears. Now, despite this threat, and 15 years of recommendations, by the way, from a national EMP commission begging us to harden our civilian infrastructure, we still have no definitive oversight body with any real power to protect the grid, either funding or regulations or anything, really. And what we've done instead is we disbanded the EMP commission entirely, allowed legislation to die in committee several times, by the way, and left our energy corporations and utilities to make their own decisions. These organizations and the private North American Energy Reliability Corporation, which is a privately owned entity that is supposed to police, quote unquote, the utilities, well, All these organizations are more concerned with protecting the grid from natural disasters and squirrels that went after the wrong nut and wound up electrocuting themselves than a nuclear disaster. The EMP Commission estimated it will cost at least $20 billion to harden our civilian infrastructure against EMP attacks. Well, I believe that it's money well spent, but you know what? Funding alone is not enough. Responsibility for grid protection has to be assigned to a single body, one that can oversee not only security, but also recovery in the aftermath of an attack. That is such a great point. The problem with a lot of government agencies is sometimes there's a responsibility that doesn't lay on any of them. And and what you're explaining is that the government's a little confused as to who should take this responsibility to actually enhance it. I think there's a lot of agreement that we should look into this, especially now with North Korea, But nobody knows who to point at to say, you need to do this. Right. Well, you know, we need to do this. Somebody needs to do it. Well, the utilities don't want to spend extra money, that kind of money to to protect the grid. Right. The uh, military is dealing with their own issues. They don't believe civilian infrastructure is part of their situation as part of their job description. They're trying to protect the country from the outside. Right. Civilian governments, uh, local governments Mm -hmm. are assuming that it's a national security problem. Well, plus it's overwhelming. I mean, if you take that cost, I mean, just the average city, they have a hard time paying their police officers and their teachers. Sure, some cities have gone bankrupt. Keeping things open, right. You know, they say, oh, say, we can't have PE this year, or we can't have the art department, or we're closing the music department, or we have to lay off officers, or maybe they have to take a pay decrease. So they just don't have a lot of extra money. This is a problem, but we need to have the government pick somebody or just form a new group. I'm not for expanding government, but, you know, whatever you want to call it. 
Well, we are also being irrational, in my opinion, in our lack of action in protecting our grid in the face of threats like we tend to respond to disasters after they happen rather than take measures to prevent their consequences. And this policy is bad enough when it comes to hurricanes and and wildfires. And boy, I'll tell you, it is just disastrous when it comes to EMPs. You know, something I haven't talked about in a while, but I talk about a lot usually is wound closure. When you have a laceration or some kind of injury that breaks the skin, well, that's your body's natural armor. And when your natural armor is breached, bacteria get a free ride to the rest of your body. Therefore, it only makes sense for you to want to close that breach to speed healing and lock out infection. Now, of course, there's controversy as to whether or not to close a wound. I mean, when and why would you choose to close a wound and what method would you use? Now, a laceration, which is basically a cut or a tear made by trauma, that can be closed either with things like staples, sutures, tapes, medical superglues, or regular superglues. And after first aid, and that includes the removal of any foreign objects in the wound, and, you know, controlling bleeding and cleaning things out, well, you have to make a decision. Are you going to close that wound or not? And in survival, it's pretty serious because you don't necessarily have all the high technology or or strong antibiotics that might prevent or might take care of an infection if it does occur. So what are you trying to accomplish by closing a wound? I mean, your goals are pretty simple. You close wounds to repair the defect in your body's armor, right? And you want to also eliminate something called dead space. And the dead space is pocket of air or pocket of inflammatory fluid that has maybe been colonized by bacteria, you don't want to close over that area without eliminating it so that there's no space that an infection can fester underneath a wound closure. And of course, the bottom line is you want to promote healing. Now, by the way, if you close a wound correctly, you probably would have less scarring too than you usually would see. Of course, it sounds like all wounds should be Closed, but unfortunately, closing a wound that should be left open can do a lot more harm than good. It could possibly put your patient's life at risk. There was a young lady injured some years ago in a zipline accident, fell off the zipline, landed in a creek bed, and wound up being taken to the local emergency room where she had a large laceration identified on her thigh, and they used 22 staples to close the large incision. Unfortunately, that wound had dangerous bacteria in it, and closing the incision wound up locking that bacteria in and allowing it to go to other places in her body. It caused a serious infection spread throughout her body, and she eventually required multiple amputations. Her hands, one leg almost to the hip, and another one a little less higher up. But boy, from this, you learn a really important lesson that the decision to close a wound is not just some automatic thing, but involves a number of factors. The most important consideration is whether you're dealing with a clean or a dirty wound. And now most wounds you're going to encounter in an off-grid setting, a survival setting, will probably be dirty. And if you try to close a dirty wound, such, such as, let's say, a gunshot, a gunshot wound is usually dirty because it has bits of clothing and maybe gunpowder or, or other debris that goes along with it. Well, if you close that, you have sequestered bacteria and dirt into your body. And within a short period of time, 
that wound can become infected and starts looking red, swollen, and hot, and you might form an abscess, a ball, a pus ball, basically, and have some real trouble. The infection may spread to the bloodstream, too, after a period of time, and that's a condition known as septicemia, and that becomes life-threatening. If you leave the wound open, that's going to allow you to clean the inside frequently and observe the healing process, see if, if there are signs of infections. Keeping the wound open also allows inflammatory fluid to drain out of the body. The scar, of course, isn't as pretty, but it's the safest option, honestly, in most cases. Other considerations when deciding whether or not to close a wound are whether it's a simple laceration, basically a straight thin cut on the skin, or whether it's some kind of avulsion. Of An avulsion is where areas of skin are torn out or there are some hanging flaps. If the edges also, of the edges of the laceration are so far apart that they can't be stitched together without causing a lot of pressure on the skin, well, the wound should be left open. Otherwise, you might just have it tear right through the skin, and that would be really bad. Yeah. <laughs> if the wound has been open for more than eight hours, that's another reason to leave it open. Even the air has bacteria, and after eight hours, there's a really good chance that the bacteria have already colonized the injury. But let's say you're certain that the wound is clean. It's less than eight hours old, and uh, it meets the other criteria. You have an idea of how it occurred, and it looks like a relatively clean setting. Now, here are some factors that would suggest that you should close that wound. And one, if you have a really long or deep laceration that doesn't look like it would heal on its own, well, that might be a reason to close it. Now, the exception would be a puncture wound from an animal bite, because these bites are loaded with bacteria, and they should be kept open in austere settings. Now, having said that, in normal times, oftentimes they are closed, but remember they have antibiotics uh, that can be given intravenously, pretty strong stuff, and other ways to deal with wounds to keep them from becoming very infected. So in a survival setting, maybe more likely to not close that animal bite wound than in any other setting. Of course, cat bites and other deep puncture wounds are almost impossible to close, really, uh, and have a lot of bacteria. Cat bites can certainly cause infections, so you have to keep that in mind. <clears throat> now, if the wound is located over a joint, you might want to close that wound because a moving part like a knee or an elbow will constantly stress a wound and prevents it from closing in on its own. The wound also can gape pretty openly, pretty loosely, and that suggests that a wound should be closed without undue pressure on the skin. If you're unsure, you can choose to wait about 48 to 72 hours before closing a wound to make sure that no signs of infection develop. That is called a delayed closure. And that means that some wounds can be partially closed, maybe allowing a small open space to prevent dead space from occurring or to avoid the accumulation of inflammatory fluids. So this delayed closure is something that is a pretty good idea to keep an eye on a wound for a couple of days to see whether there's going to be signs of infection occurring. That's something that would be another factor in terms of deciding whether a wound should be closed or whether it should be allowed to heal in from below. That's a process called granulation because the tissue, as it's healing in, has a sort of granular to it. There are ways that you can expose the dead space or eliminate the dead space and not allow accumulation of fluid and uh, that may cause infection, and that is by using something called a drain. There are expensive high-technology versions of drains that are used 
in surgical procedures or after surgical procedures. But there are also simple drains that can be purchased for very little money, and, call, and they consist of thin lengths of either latex or nitrile, or even gauze actually might be placed into an open wound for the purpose of making sure that you have drained out any inflammatory fluid or right. any infection I think that might be there. Exactly. I, th- I think the whole purpose of this, and just to make it really clear, is you just don't want that to close over and allow all that pus to build up inside. Exactly. And get a big giant lump. If anyone's ever had an abscess or a boil or even a giant pimple, you understand what happens underneath the skin when that kind of junk, (laughs) which is a mixture of a whole bunch of different things, is building up. So that that drain allows it to come out so there's no pressure buildup and there's no formation of of all that stuff underneath the skin. And it makes and it makes sense well, because... Well, for he- better healing. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, now, uh, by the way, the, the drains that I'm talking about are these thin lengths of these nitrile uh, drains. Their, their brand is called the Penrose drain. Their type of drain is called the Penrose drain. That's a version that is still used in some operating rooms, by the way, uh, although they're very inexpensive um, Drains can have a tendency to leak, so you always have to place a dressing over an exposed open wound that you're sort of following and keeping an eye on until it closes on itself. Now, many injuries that require closure and some that don't also should be treated with antibiotics in either oral or topical form to decrease the chance of infection. Now, natural substances with antibiotic properties such as garlic or raw and processed honey these could be actually pretty useful in survival scenarios. So if you can grow garlic or you have a, a beehive or a, you might be a pretty good hobby to have if you're worried about the uncertain future. Now let's talk a little bit about different methods that are available to close the laceration. Of course, you should use the simplest and the least invasive method that's going to do the job. Now non-invasive methods involve the use of of tapes and glues, invasive methods would be things like sutures and staples. Now, the least invasive methods are make the most sense to me, and that's for a number of different reasons. Number one, they're less painful for the patient to close a wound with, uh, let's say, steri-strips or glues. Uh, unlike sutures or staples, um, they don't cause additional punctures of the skin. So, you know, glues and and tapes, obviously, aren't going to actually cut into the skin. So that's another good reason, Le- uh, less risk of infection. Uh, materials are less expensive. Obviously, it costs less to have butterfly closures uh, or super glue, for example, than sutures or staples. These things are pretty expensive. Now, in a survival setting, more advanced closure materials like sutures and staples, well, you know what? You have to realize that they're no longer being manufactured. So your supply is actually pretty limited. So tapes and glues make might make some sense. The easiest one to use is called a steri-strip. It's kind of butterfly closure, an adhesive bandage, which adheres to each side of the wound and pulls it together, getting the skin, the cut, the cut skin edges to sort of approximate each other and begin the healing process. Now, the good news about these, they don't require puncturing the skin. They fall off on their own over time. Of course, what you need to do, of course, is to have some kind of glue for this, these uh, tapes, special steri-strip tapes, because if you can put uh, a glue like tincture of benzoin, B-E-N-Z-O-I-N, 
on the stereostrips, what happens is it might be able to stay in place over a few showers, perhaps. And if that's the case, well, obviously, you are going to have an easier time dealing with that wound healing. Now, for additional security, some more tincture of that benzoin is applied to skin on each side, and you can apply some triple antibiotic cream on it to try to prevent it from getting infected. Now, there is another non-invasive method that involves using special glues. Cyanoacrylate is a type of glue used in both industrial superglue and in medical glue, such things like Dermabond and Surgiseal. These things are prescription-strength items, and they're relatively expensive, probably 50 bucks more than that per shot. But indeed, they are medical grade, and they're made specifically for use on the skin. Now, interestingly enough, regular superglue is also acceptable to close skin with. You may wonder why I say that and how, how I could say that. They're obviously different. Well, they are different by one chemical chain. Um, medical superglue is uh, N, I think, octal cyanoacrylate, and regular superglue is N-butyl cyanoacrylate. So it is basically very, very similar. And the only thing is that there may be less of a skin reaction with the medical superglue. And indeed, it theoretically handles being wet better than industrial superglue. If you're going to use industrial superglue, use superglue gel, easier to deal with. I think that that's important. And how could I say that superglue is acceptable? Simple. There are countries in this world that do not have two nickels to rub together. And these people have emergency rooms and they have people that get injured and they actually use industrial superglue in some of these places to close lacerations. So much so that there's pretty extensive experience in using this stuff and some of the countries that use it seem to think that it has a very low infection rate, even lower than sometimes is reported with medical superglues here in the United States. Now, can you believe it? I don't know, but it's something that you can do. Now, Skin glues are indicated wherever there's little or no tension in a dry, not actively bleeding, wound that is not over a joint. So that's when you use it, little, little or no tension, not bleeding actively, and not over a joint. Oh, and, and they're also not to be used inside their mouth. They're not good for oral lacerations. Now, to use topical skin adhesive glue, this is what you do. You approximate the wound edges very carefully, and this is best done by somebody helping you, if you can possibly get some help. Uh, then you gently brush the glue over the laceration, taking care not to push any below the level of the skin. The skin has to be together, remember, because you don't want a layer of glue in between the two edges of the skin that you want to heal. Now, then you apply about three layers of the adhesive over the wound, but you, what you're doing is you're placing one layer first and widening the area of glue each time, each layer after it dries, to and that increases the strength of the closure. Now, once you're completely dry, you might even consider adding stereostrips on top, and that'll increase the strength of the closure, and certainly something that you might find useful. Now, I'm although back. and you're back, <laughs> where have you been? I had to go get tea. Uh huh. I, I apologize to everyone out there that I was coughing like on air. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit about teas Are right you after really? this, as a matter of fact. I have hibiscus and I have a lemon blend. Wow. And I could go get the ingredients, but I believe Sounds it has. tasty. Of course, some lemon peel and it has, 
I think lemongrass. Oh, very nice. Wow, all sorts of. I have to go see what's in it. All sorts of natural stuff, and I that is awesome. Got to use all the Isn't tools. Isn't it pretty too? The hibiscus yeah. makes it like a red, reddish color. You got to use all and the I tools have, of the woodshed. And in this cup here, waiting for Some the honey. tea to brew, is yep. Awesome. Some organic, or I shouldn't say organic. Some raw, unprocessed vanilla honey. Honey, wow. crazy that baby. I got at one of the um, Mother Earth shows. That well, that is to. awesome. Well, I'm hoping it'll keep me from coughing. Yes. Now, I just want to finish up with uh, the glues. Uh, although you use uh, antibiotic ointment on most wound closures, when you have skin glues, you want to avoid it because it breaks down the glue itself. You have to know also that the glue ha it forms a barrier and actually sort of prevents the wound from infection on its own. So you do not have to use antibiotic ointment on a wound closure performed with glues, medical or super glue. So this is something that is, I think, a reasonable option. So I don't don't be afraid to use these lesser versions. Remember, if you truly think that some event may occur that may cause a long-term survival situation, well, you know what? They're not going to be making the sutures and the staples anymore. You might be able to accumulate a good amount of glue or steri-strips, but the sutures and staples, those are going to be harder to get and going to be much more expensive. And so you want to really hold back on those until you absolutely need to use them. Use the lesser methods first. Closures with butterfly, closures, stereostrips, superglues. They, maybe they're not as strong as a closure with, with sutures and staples, especially in the first few days. But there are a lot of circumstances where you can use them. And it's something that you need to have a good amount of. So make sure you have a good stockpile of stereostrip, superglue in gel form. I think that's a good start. Now, by the way, if you're concerned about allergic reactions, what you should do is everybody that you expect to take care of as a medic, take a drop of that superglue, put it on the inside of their forearm and see how things look in 48 hours. There'll be a nice rash there if that person is allergic to those glues and not there if they are fine. So you could tell who shouldn't be using glues by doing that test. I said we were going to talk a little bit about herbal teas. So I want to talk about that. So this goes back to my expending medical supplies conversation here. In a long-term survival setting where you're knocked off the grid, the medical supplies that you have, they're going to be expended and medicines dispensed. Well, you know what? They probably are not going to be easily replaced unless society stabilizes very quickly. You're not going to be able to get more of this stuff. So that's why you should get a lot of it right now and have plenty of it for in your medical storage. But you also have to think about other things. When you're confronted with dwindling access to the tools that you need to keep people healthy, it just makes sense that knowledge of natural remedies is very important. Every medic must determine whether they really believe a long-term survival scenario is a possibility. If that's not your concern, if you're only worried about three days without power from a storm, you don't need to worry about learning about the plants in your backyard that might have medicinal benefit even though it's probably a really good thing to know anyhow. So for long-term storage, I would have to say that you should consider having things like essential oils. They would last a long time. They're some of the best natural products the medic can stockpile because they are products that last a very long time. The problem is that producing new supplies of them is very problematic because you need a distilling equipment. You need a large amount of plant material, large amount. And without that, you're not going to be able to replenish oils in any significant 
quantity. A more realistic option for sustaining herbal medicines, sustainable situations, is using fresh or dried plant materials in teas, just like Amy is doing with this hibiscus. Is it hibiscus and what else? Hibiscus and a lemon blend. Hibiscus and lemon blend. Well, I'll go get the box. We have hibiscus bushes right where we are here. Even as far north as Tennessee, I still see hibiscus. And we have, yep, we have (laughs) lots of different things that we can use that have medicinal benefits. We have a big medicinal garden for our area. And that's the thing. You have to have a garden. Most of these Plants require a little more than a garden and maybe a little knowledge regarding how to use each herb. It should be noted that the term tea is actually incorrect. We use the word tea to describe almost anything in hot water, but the word actually refers to various drinks that are made just from the leaves of one species, Camellia sinensis. That means green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong teas. These are all made from the same plant and only the processing differs. Now, the proper term, really, for a drink made by steeping herbs in hot water that is not Camellia sinensis would actually be an herbal infusion or a tisane, actually. They call it T-I-S-A-N-E. But for simplicity's sake, we're going to call them teas. You want to hear what's in my tea? Yes, what's in your tea? Okay, my tea has, let's see, lemon, so small, lemon verbena, uh-huh. um, organic green Rubos, R-O-O-I-B-O-S, tea, organic lemon balm, organic lemon peel, organic lemon grass, and it's caffeine-free, kosher, and non-GMO, organic goodness. It says (laughs) organic goodness. Organic goodness. Okay. Well, there you go. Now, let's talk about stand. Now, that is not a standard tea, but it is is certainly, certainly a tea that uh, looks like it has some potential. I need to find out what that green ru- rubos tea is. We have to find out a lot. We need to know a lot more about these <laughs> natural products. The other ones I've heard of. Now, the standard teas, the green, black, white, and oolong teas, these are high in antioxidants, have a lot of health benefits ascribed to them for various medical issues, including heart disease, type 2 diabetes, liver dysfunction, all sorts of stuff. So that's one set, and that we can actually call teas. Now, the herbal infusions that I'm talking about, making those pretty much one of the simplest ways that you can prepare medicinal herbs. If you can brew, boil water, you can brew tea or an herbal infusion. You just bring some water to a rolling boil in a pot or other container. You crush the herb leaves. could be the leaves in some cases, roots in others, flowers in others. And you boil the, uh, pour the boiled water over about one teaspoon of herbs, and you let it seep for about 10 to 10 minutes or so. Now, you can keep a cover on it while it's steeping, and uh, you can, of course, these things do come in tea bags or, or tea bobs, which is a little metal object that uh, you can put the tea in, and it allows it to sort of strain out and, and get itself into the hot water. Um but if you don't use that, you can still, as long as you have a strainer, have no problem making your tea. Just place the strainer over a cup and pour pour it out, and then it'll keep the plant material in the strainer and the tea uh, or herbal infusion in your cup. Now, of course, honey, like Amy is using in hers, is always a very useful way to sweeten tea. It also mm-hmm. has a lot of great delicious. great medicinal benefits, antimicrobial benefits, things like that. Lemon is also very good for similar reasons. 
So it's something that is, I think, awesome. It is really turning red. Isn't that beautiful? I like uh, green tea with lemon and honey. So I'll bet this with lemon and honey is is really awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are... Now, remember, a tea doesn't have to be necessarily ingested to be a benefit. You could use it as an eye wash. Some irrigation solutions for wounds can, can be made out of these herbal infusions. Uh, cold or warm compresses, especially over an injured eye that, or maybe a sty, that might be a reason to use it. And there are lots of different herbs that you can use. Uh, Amy used hibiscus and rubos and a number of other ones in her tea, but... There are a lot of teas that, can, that were made by your ancestors specifically for medicinal purposes, and here are a few of them. Uh, alfalfa, let's start alphabetically. Alfalfa, the seeds and leaves contain vitamins A, C, E, and K. They have calcium, phosphorus, iron, and potassium, lots of stuff. In the past, it was used as a diuretic to help urine flow for upset stomachs. There's some claims that it helps arthritis pain and might lower cholesterol. And very simple, one to two teaspoons of dried leaves. Steep it in one cup of boiling water for about 10, 20 minutes. You're ready to go. Uh, Let's see, burdock is another herb that you can use. You would use that in its root form. The dried root has been used in teas to help treat psoriasis, clear acne. You have to use two tablespoons of fresh grated root or uh, one tablespoon of a very dried root and put that in about three cups of boiling water and you're good to go. Uh, catnip is very commonly used to treat intestinal cramping. The leaves and the flowers work for, for catnip. It also works for indigestion, diarrhea, other stomach ailments. Uh, some people believe it treats respiratory infections like the common cold and may even have a mild sedative effect. I mean, it has obviously an effect on cats, so it wouldn't surprise me that it has a little bit of an effect on humans too. Simple one teaspoon of dried leaves or one tablespoon of fresh leaves per cup, and you're good. Uh, chamomile is another very nice tea, very popular. Chamomile, For you have relaxation. Chamo- you have chamomile, yes. right? Right? This popular tea contains tryptophan, and that gives it a relaxing, sedative-type effect. Like the and turkey dinner. Like a turkey, <laughs> like a turkey dinner. And helps treat anxiety, insomnia. Uh, there are a lot of antioxidants in chamomile, and that could help slow down the progression of a lot of different problems. Nerve damage in diabetics, for example, is one thing that has been thought to be helpful for. You would use two to three teaspoons of dried flowers per cup for this. This is delicious, by the way. You want to taste it? Uh, sure. Here. Let's see. Is this good? I'm telling you. Mm, not bad. Isn't it? Yeah, I like it. Well, let's see. <laughs> we have to figure out. You should we'll look. just sit here and sip tea. You guys can look, listen. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Look up what hibiscus. I don't know if I have a hibiscus, hibiscus on my list here. Um, I have read about it since we have the hibiscus bush, and I think I remember it has the ability to lower blood pressure. Hibiscus. Okay, well that's good. Well, let's go. Let me talk about chicory for a second, and I will get back to you. You know, when supplies of coffee ran out during the Civil War, soldiers used the root of chicory, and it's a very common plant. Uh, as a substitute, doesn't have caffeine, though, and has more of a sedative than a stimulant effect in large amounts. Now, chicory root has an effect against intestinal worms, too, and has been shown in animal studies to help improve calcium absorption and even bone mineral density. So that's pretty cool. Uh, this is a root plant, uh, a root tea, but you want to scrape off the bark off the root before you dry it out. Use about one teaspoon of dried root to one cup of water. Now, some people say that tea made from leaves of 
chicory mm-hmm. uh, has chicory. a laxative effect. I like that word. Okay, why don't you tell us a little bit about what hibiscus tea does for you? Well, you know, there's a lot of sources online. So I always try to find WebMD. I figure at least they're going to tell me if there's any studies. And sure enough, it says possibly effective for da 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 high blood pressure. Really? I remembered, awesome. I remembered correctly. Well done. Well done. <laughs> it says some early resource resource research shows that drinking hibiscus tea for two to six weeks decreases blood pressure in people with mildly high blood pressure. Other early research shows that a hibiscus extract by by mouth for four weeks may be as effective as the prescription drug catapril. Wow. Captopril. Captopril. Wow, yeah. Let's talk about dandelion tea. Dandelion tea uh, is pretty impressive. It has vitamins. The common dandelion has vitamins and minerals, and it is also known as calendula, right? Yes, calendula. Calendula or calendula, is it? <laughs> ah. well, That's it, what we used to say. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, dandelion is thought to have more beta carotene, an important antioxidant, than a similar serving of carrots. Young flowers and leaves make a good tea, helps constipation. Uh, roasting the roots produces a coffee-like drink, and uh, you would use about two teaspoons of dried chopped root and a, a cup of water to see how that, see if that works. Let me know. Then there's echinacea, and echinacea is pretty well known that it's helpful to decrease the duration of colds and flus. Echinacea boosts the immune system. It may have some antiviral activity too. So one to two teaspoons of the leaf flower or half a teaspoon of the root to a cup of boiling water and there you have echinacea tea. Then there's elderberry tea. Elderberry flowers make a tea that's used for a lot of upper respiratory infections. Good for colds and flus, laryngitis, sinusitis. If you put elder Berry compress, uh, elderberry tea in a compress, the tea may be helpful for wound healing. So used for skin conditions as well. So the purple and blue flowers that come with elderberry are pretty high in antioxidants. They can be made into a juice or a syrup. And to do that, it, there's a special way to do that. You put two pounds of elderberries and four cups of water in a pot bring it to a boil, then simmer for about a half hour, and then use a fine mesh strainer to press out the juice. Now, you might want to add some sugar under medium heat. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, you actually make a syrup that doesn't taste so bad. So it might be something worth doing. Uh, Eucalyptus tea is uh, good for people that have asthma, other respiratory infections. It helps to open airways and loosens thick mucus. Might have antibacterial and antiviral effects and for that a half a teaspoon of dried or fresh leaves and one to two cups of water and you're good then of course there's ginger tea who hasn't heard of ginger tea now they don't use roots they don't use um, the leaves in general what they use are the underground stems or rhizomes pretty amazing looking things i'm sure you've seen the rhizomes of ginger in the past they're great to treat nausea morning sickness, motion sickness, those kind of things. Really good. You slice an inch of of the rhizome into small pieces, then simmer in a cup, two cups of water, let's say, on low heat for about 15 minutes. Then uh, you can also strain ginger powder. You can dry it and make a powder out of it. One quarter to half a teaspoon of ginger powder would also be useful. Uh, ginseng, a lot of people like ginseng. Uh, 
Asian and American ginseng root can be made into an herbal tea, uh, helpful for blood sugar levels. Uh, and you, what you would want to do is maybe get three to six teaspoons of the root, uh, simmer that for about 45 minutes in three to four cups of water and strain it out. And there you have your tea. Uh, lavender tea is also very popular. It's used also in aromatherapy. I'm, I'm sure you knew that. Lavender may improve nausea and other digestive symptoms, and it's thought to decrease migraine headaches in some people and possibly limit convulsions and muscle spasms, good sort of a nerve relaxant. So one tablespoon of dried herb in a cup of water, and that's all you really need. I'm trying to think of other teas here. Uh, lemon balm tea would probably be a reasonable choice. And uh, you have lemon balm, I think, in your hibiscus tea. Yes, Wasn't I that do. one of the ingredients? Yes, it is. That's right. Uh, the herb has antiviral effects. Uh, it, it was used in the past to treat mouth, throat, and dental infections like uh, gingivitis, mm -hmm. even herpes sores, oral herpes. Uh, it might decrease anxiety, aid, aid in sleep, might improve intestinal spasms and nausea. A lot of possible uh, benefits here. Uh, add one teaspoon of the dried herb or five to six fresh leaves to a cup of boiling water. And you've got quite a lot of things that you can use this for. Now, the thing about herbal teas is that your experience may vary. It depends a little bit on the herb itself, uh, the subspecies of the herb, the soil conditions, the water conditions, uh, whether the climate conditions, whether it was cold, whether it was warm that season. And, and indeed, your herbs may be more potent one year than another, almost like a wine may be better one year than another in, in different vintages. So it's an interesting thing about natural products is that you do have some variation. You have to accept that some variation may occur, but indeed they have some medicinal benefits. So make sure you use all the tools in the woodshed. If you can use all the tools in the woodshed, you'll be a more effective medic and especially more effective as time goes on. And things stay bad, if an EMP knocks out the grid for a good long period of time, then the more you know about the herbs in your area, the more effective you'll be in helping take care of people's medical problems. And so I think that that makes the most sense. I think we're almost out of time. Amy? Yes. Thank you so much for being present. For drinking tea. And drinking tea <laughs> while I'm talking myself hoarse here. I'm sorry, but you did such a beautiful job, darling. Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, let's see. what I don't even have any news as to where we're going to be next. That's right. Well, we are going to be at the SHOT Show. But that SHOT is, Show. That is indeed in January. And we it's are, not open to the public, unfortunately. It's not open to the public, but we are going to it's show be an experience. our... Yeah, we're going to show our medical kits to the entire firearms industry. Everybody's so, going to be there. This is huge. Absolutely. Glock, SIG, you name it. If they make a gun or have any relationship to the gun industry whatsoever, they're going to be there. I'm just well, We're going to go there. I'm hoping that, that these folks have realized how important that it should be for them to also have first aid kits. I agree. That and is... that I can provide quality first aid kits so that people who may get hurt with these items can at least possibly have their lives saved. So that's, well, that's my I thing. I support you in your mission. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.